Welcome to this episode of the Loop Ventures Brain Tech Podcast. This is Doug Clinton. Today's guest is Chad Boten from the Feinstein Institute, where he's the center head and director of the Center for Bioelectronic Medicine. Now, bioelectronic medicine is a relatively new topic for this show, but I left the conversation believing it's one of the most promising innovations in neuroscience today. We also talked about Chad's work in using neural interfaces to restore movement for a quadriplegic patient, Ian Burkhart, who will join us on the show next week. And now, here is Professor Chad Boten. Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. To start, maybe could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be interested in neuroscience and sort of how the brain works in general? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question because I started out really in engineering and as an undergrad really studying electrical engineering and control theory and signal processing and then later machine learning. But in grad school, I started to gravitate towards engineering mechanics and engineering physics kinds of topics. I was doing a lot of robotics actually at that time and very interested in that area. But then when I started my career, I ended up in the medical device technology world and fell in love with it right away. But only a couple years into that, I had the opportunity to develop some new methods and and techniques to record and and try to decipher or decode, as we say, um, you know, brain signals. And this was in folks that uh, were living with paralysis. And and I fell in love with that. And so I really just, you know, had to kind of learn from reading about all of the incredible work that had been done in that area to that point. And then we had to learn a lot kind of on the fly. You know, how do you decipher these signals? You know, how do you work with them? And so that's kind of how all of that started. And so now you are the head of the Center for Bioelectronic Medicine at the Feinstein Institute. And so let me start with a high-level question there. I think a lot of our audience is familiar with the idea of brain-machine interfaces or neural interfaces, but they may not be as familiar with the concept of bioelectronic medicine. So can you give us a description of how you kind of delineate or how you think about the two different fields? Yeah, so... What uh, you can think about, you know, bioelectronic medicine as the combination of neuroscience, molecular targets, and technology. And it defines you try to really leverage our knowledge and expertise in those three areas. And we try to build teams that have expertise in those three critical components. And we try to really map out a solution or at least the initial questions all together. We like to get everyone, all the stakeholders together on at the very beginning of the project. And so we have a long history here in really understanding and identifying molecular targets. And then that's how drug development has been done for many, many, many years. But we try to do that in bioelectronic medicine first and then identify the neural pathway that modulates that target and then from there develop you know a technology that can modulate the pathway accordingly so it's a method and a process that we use and have used very successfully and you can replicate it brain machine interfaces is a very specific area where you're trying to interface with the brain and specifically for either recording and extracting information so imagine putting a little chip say in the motor area and trying to look at signals in the area where someone's thinking about movement and it might be someone who's paralyzed and we can talk about that a bit more but basically you try to understand those signals and see if you can find correlations between those signals and literally imagined movements so you might be able to help someone who's paralyzed actually restore say function in their hand or even someday in their lower extremities by 
listening to those signals, deciphering them, and then maybe even rerouting them, linking them to muscle activation. So that whole area is called a brain-machine interface or brain-computer interface technology. That's one application and area that I've really focused on in terms of paralysis. But you could imagine the future, you know, that opening up a door to all sorts of possibilities. If you could literally interface the brain with a computer or the Internet or even a machine that has maybe a form of artificial intelligence. And, and that just <laughs> opens up, uh, like I said, you know, new avenues and huge questions as well. Yeah, certainly a limitless future. Why don't we jump into the bioelectronic medicine piece first? And so I know that to sort of give an example for the audience, there's been talk about how bioelectronic medicine could ultimately replace the need for many pharmaceuticals. So first of all, would you agree with that statement? And then second, if you do, could you give us an example to sort of contextualize that? Like how would that look maybe in three, four, five years from now? Yes, well, first let me tell a little bit about the story. So Dr. Kevin Tracy here at Defiance, he's the CEO and one of the pioneers uh, in this area, many years ago uh, discovered what he termed the, the inflammatory reflex. And in that pathway or that reflex mechanism, basically he traced signals from the brain to the spleen and realized that uh, changes in those neural signals were affecting cytokines that are produced in the spleen itself, which are very important to inflammation. We have pro-inflammatory cytokines that can actually be suppressed or reduced in terms of their, their presence or production in the spleen. And from all of that groundbreaking work has come a lot of new possibilities. And a company called Setpoint Medical was actually spun out of the Feinstein and from that work where they're targeting rheumatoid arthritis. And their initial clinical studies have shown very promising results. So imagine that you could tap into the nervous system, actually modulate signals, and to do that and affect things like inflammation, you know, for rheumatoid arthritis, even Crohn's disease or IBD, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, the list goes on. But imagine if you could do that with electrical signals and actually leveraging the nervous system and not, in some cases, relying on drugs and potentially even replacing drugs. So that's kind of some of the history and, and some of the possibilities. And now if you think about the nervous system as a whole, central and peripheral, and you think about the autonomic nervous system, I mean, there are so many processes controlled and also monitored by the nervous system. So now we're trying to tap into that network and learn the language of the nervous system. And so we think if we can crack the neural code, we may be able to not only treat a wide variety of conditions, but maybe even diagnose those conditions early on. And that often is the key to treatment, catching disease early. And as you think about just the concept of sort of cracking the neural code, as you put it, how far on the path to that ultimate goal do you think we are? I mean, you mentioned Setpoint Medical that's got a product, I think, early in the market. We're going through trials now. But what are sort of the hangups or what needs to happen until we see bioelectronic medicine more commonplace? Well, I think that we already are seeing devices like the Setpoint Medical device. We're seeing there has been work in the area of spinal cord stimulation for pain and there's been deep brain stimulation devices for Parkinson's and a central tremor. Now, with the way we approach bioelectronic medicine, we really want to understand the mechanism and really understand the targets that are involved, which usually, you know, really allows you to refine the approach and make it more effective and reduce side effects, too, by the way. One of the huge advantages of this is you're doing 
this stimulation and, and you're leveraging the, the nervous system and trying to do things in a little more natural way where you can often be precise and avoid side effects or off-target effects. With drugs, unfortunately, drugs have many side effects or off-target effects. And uh, as you know, I'm sure if you've read a prescription and all of the notes in the fine print, uh, there's usually a long list of potential side effects. And so we're trying to be more specific and avoid those. And the beauty is also with electrical stim or stimulation, you can you can adjust it, and often you can adjust it, you know, very quickly and and again be very you know be more specific. So that's kind of you know the general idea. And you know I mentioned diagnostics. One of the things that we're doing and yeah, and where are we in terms of the stage? Well, we're doing some very early work. Dr. Theo Zanos in the center is also working on this idea of trying to look at signals in, say, the vagus nerve, for example, and to see if we can extract or decode information in the vagus nerve that might give us an indication of inflammation or changes in uh, the status of organ function. If we can do that, and again, we're only at the early stages, but if we can do that, then you can imagine one day having a chip that literally is monitoring many, many biomarkers that would be of interest. And you could pull your cell phone out and say, you know, okay, here are my various levels uh, that you normally would have to go get a blood test for. And, you know, this is, this is in the future, but definitely something we're interested in and working towards. So really, I think the sky's the limit in terms of uh, doing early diagnostics or real-time diagnostics, we often call it, or to crack that neural code, understand some of these uh, signaling mechanisms and then turn around and speak the language. I often will say you have to first understand and decode and really do that first. And then if you learn how to decode these signals and understand them, then you can turn around and perhaps uh, encode or speak the language and send very specific signals in to help the body naturally address a wide variety of conditions. When you describe the technology, it just seems so compelling. And I'm curious, maybe just from a high level and tying it to maybe our next topic with brain-machine interface, it feels like brain-machine interfaces have had a little bit of a moment in terms of public discovery with people like Elon Musk working on Neuralink, uh, Brian Johnson with Kernel. But bioelectronic medicine, it seems, has sort of remained under the radar. So why do you think it is that that particular field has not maybe seen the same level of public excitement or public knowledge as BMI? Well, that's a great question. I think as I'm describing this, you probably got a sense for how vast and complex the nervous system is. And, and we're still at the tip of the iceberg, but I think we have to realize, wow, we've had some incredible breakthroughs already. And with some of these spinouts that I mentioned, you know, we already have actual devices and have shown initial results that are promising in clinical studies, at least these initial clinical studies. And I think that we're still early in the field, but it's growing extreme pace and I think that it's sometimes hard for people to maybe get their head wrapped around it because it is, again, a pretty fast area with lots of possibilities. But I think if we get specific and we talk about specific conditions and, and show where we've had some successes, then I think it becomes more real. I think that with brain-computer interfaces, everybody's just fascinated with the idea of connecting the brain to the, you know, the Internet or your computer. And you literally are thinking about whether it's movements or moving your hand and being able to recognize that and drive a cursor on a computer, which we, we did initially in one of the initial studies 15 years ago. That was so exciting because someone's literally using their mind to have an effect over something and help people that are living with paralysis that just opens so many possibilities. Up. And I think people see that it's a really tangible thing and it's very visual and people get very excited about it. 
but I think what's going to happen is over time, people will see that we also can treat inflammatory diseases or we can treat, say, diabetes by using similar types of methods in terms of deciphering, but also stimulating and being very specific about it, speaking the language of the nervous system. And people, will really, I think, will start to appreciate how this is a little more natural and leveraging some of the body's built-in systems. You know, with a lot of these conditions and diseases, it's really that some of the neural control is a little bit dysregulated, if you will, and sometimes just nudging things a little bit in the right direction can help tremendously. You know, I come from a control theory background, so everything to me is a, is a feedback loop. And so, as you know, with the nervous system, it's a bunch of feedback loops and what we call nested loops. So it's very complex, but a lot of times you find out, you know, and this is the case with Parkinson's, for example, it is actually a feedback loop that is becoming what we call marginally stable. So there's a little bit of an oscillation starting to happen in the brain. But uh, if we go in and we stimulate, we can kind of nudge it out of that oscillatory mode and reduce tremors and uh, alleviate some of these symptoms. Same thing if you want to think about metabolic disorders or diabetes, you know, I think we're learning more and more that it's a control system issue. Things are just a, a bit off. Obviously, there's other problems as well in terms of type 2 diabetes and in terms of weight, obesity, and all of those things are complicated and inter interrelated. But I think we're finding we can do a lot if we just kind of get some of these systems back into uh, balance and uh, help regulate things a little more naturally. So we're learning a lot and there's tons of possibilities. Makes perfect sense. I think we have what we should call the title of the episode, which is Everything is a Feedback Loop. I think that's a really <laughs> it's an important and succinct observation about not only medicine, but probably a lot of other fields that we're uh, working in. Let me switch gears to the brain-computer interface space. And you mentioned some of the work that you have done with patients dealing with paralysis. And you've had some pretty compelling research there, some, some amazing results. And I'd love for you to maybe just tell us a little bit about what you've sort of accomplished in that field so far in terms of restoring motor function. Absolutely. So this is an area that, as you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about because there are over 25 million people in the world that are living with a significant level of paralysis. The two leading causes are stroke and spinal cord injury. I've had the pleasure of working with various study participants, including it's known publicly, uh, Ian Burkhardt participated in one of these studies. Ian's an incredible individual, and he was able to uh, demonstrate that he could regain some functional movement. And he was the first human to do this, but to regain functional movement in his hand using a electronic bypass, if you will, a neural bypass where there was a chip. We planted a chip in his motor area, primary motor cortex. We detected signals in his brain as he thought about movement, and we literally rerouted those signals around his spinal cord injury, and we were able to reconnect those signals to his muscles and activate movement in his hand. You know, he has been picking up objects and even moving individual fingers, which really exceeded, I think, all of our expectations. We'll include a video in the show notes of Ian using the device. It really is emotional and it's amazing to watch. So hopefully everybody will check that out. I had the fortune to speak a little bit with Ian a few weeks ago. And one thing he mentioned was just sort of sometimes the training to use the device could be very difficult. You know, we've spent a lot of time thinking about how these devices will evolve. But how do you think the training modalities that we use combining the patients with the devices will evolve as well? 
Yes, right now it takes a team of uh, engineers and scientists standing around and working with the system. You have to calibrate or train the machine learning algorithms, and it's a bit time-consuming, although we've developed methods that do adapt and they are coming faster and faster. But what we really want is something where maybe you do some initial training, but then after that it trains itself in the background and lets uh, someone you know, kind of go on about their normal day and just have it uh, adjusting and learning and always calibrating itself. That's what we want ultimately, but to do that, you need to really find this signal in the brain. We used to think we wanted to look for a signal that would kind of indicate success, like the movement was done correctly. But now we think we want to find the signal that's, uh-oh, that movement was not correct. And again, it's kind of you know, feedback you know, loop where perhaps is things are happening, but the movement, it was not really what they wanted. We detect that signal in the brain that, uh-oh, that was, that was not what I really intended. And then to use that to adapt and train or converge onto a better uh, control algorithm and uh, or decoding algorithm. So we, we have some specific methods that we're working on, and but we really need to continue to record signals, learn about how the brain activity changes and evolves. You know, one example I like to talk about is that in our first study, when we were trying to restore functional movement, Ian, for example, might try to grasp an object, but as soon as he tried to move it, even just six inches, he initially would drop the object. And, you know, we talked a lot about this and studied the brain activity. And, you know, we figured out, as we showed in one of our papers, that really that uh, brain activity was, was certainly changing when he wanted to not only grasp something, but move it somewhere. That's a context change. That's a, an intention that has changed now. The intent in the brain has shifted. So we found out that we needed to really learn that, adapt to that, be nimble. And so we developed methods to do that. And, and I think as we move forward and we try to have these smarter algorithms running in the background and adjusting themselves, um, you know, we're going to continue to have to do that and be very nimble and flexible. And we'd ultimately like to have these kinds of things running on a, a portable machine that require a desktop or two big computers, you know, or a desktop full of equipment. So we're trying to shrink everything down and make it, you know, more portable and make it more usable. Let me dig into one point you just made there. You mentioned the concept of both looking for signals in the brain and then decoding those signals. Yes. So if I think about that, it seems like a bit of a question of sort of the bandwidth between the brain and the computer and then sort of the processing of the computer. So which of those two dynamics is the bigger bottleneck right now to progress with brain-computer interfaces? Do you mean between the processing or the bandwidth of the... The difference or the bottleneck between pulling data from the brain versus sort of processing what that data means and and being able to interact with it. Okay, right. The bandwidth of the connection so is definitely a big bottleneck. Probably it's the bigger limitation than, say, the processing power. You know, we can now use very powerful microprocessors, digital signal processors. The power in your iPhone, you know, for example, is is pretty incredible compared to what we had even, even just a few years ago. But the bandwidth limitation in terms of how much data we can get out of the brain or introduce into the brain, that's an issue. A couple reasons. One is the actual chip, the brain interface or the electrodes as we call it. Those electrodes need to be smaller, more tightly packed. And then even once that has been solved, we actually need to then have all the connections and be able to you know, send all of that information somewhere or bring it into the brain. So getting in and out 
and there's methods now being developed for wireless connections, but there's heat issues of the device that's implanted, and those are getting resolved, but still you're starting to move from literally only 100 electrodes is where we are now uh, in these clinical studies, maybe a couple hundred, but we want to go to thousands of electrodes because we're only listening in on a handful of neurons. If you think about the fact there are you know, millions of neurons of interest you know, involved in these different movements we've, we've been talking about, you know, the hand and the arm and legs eventually, and yet we're only listening to a handful, I mean, 100 if we're lucky, or maybe 50 neurons. And so we really want to have better electrode technology and better ways to transfer lots of information in and out of the brain. There's a new DARPA project actually that was just announced that they're looking for proposals on, and it involves trying to look at non-invasive or uh, where you might place in a minimally invasive sense, you know, tiny little electrodes or some kind of a interface in the brain where you could then have lots of signals at your disposal. But we know we're not there yet. And uh, it's a huge bottleneck. Got it. Let me, if I can, try to tie maybe the bioelectronic medicine piece to the brain computer interface piece and ask, as I think about those two opportunities, you know, we have one opportunity where maybe we are trying to restore motor function, which happens in one part of the brain, and the other, we are maybe dealing with the vagus nerve in another part of the brain. So do you ultimately see these two fields sort of converging into one device that maybe everybody eventually has, or will there always be separate devices for separate sort of use categories? That's a great question. I think that there will certainly be certain platforms, if you will, but to be honest, I think it absolutely depends on the condition. And, you know, if you're trying to deal with, say, paralysis versus diabetes, well, you're going to target different parts of the nervous system. You're going to have goals that are a little bit different, and that's going to really refine the neural interface itself, where you tap in, how you tap in, and how much information you need to, to get in and out of the system, of the nervous system. Yeah, so I think that you're going to have a lot of devices that are very tailored. And then that kind of follows that process I talked about, you know, where we look at the target and we look at the neural pathway that modulates that target. And we look at the technology needed to link into that neural pathway and whether that's, you know, in the brain or or certain part or different parts of the brain or whether it's a peripheral nerve or whether it's the vagus nerve at the level of the neck, the cervical level, or whether it's you need to go to the pancreatic branch of, say, the vagus nerve or you need to go to some other peripheral nerve. It totally depends. We do find that there are some spots that are pretty prime spots, like I mentioned in the neck, uh, where you have your, we like to call the transatlantic cable, and that is where there's a lot of information available. In fact, in the vagus nerve at the cervical level, there are 80% of those fibers, there's about 100,000 fibers in, in a human in one branch, and those on the left and the right side, by the way, but 80% of those, so 80,000 of those fibers are actually carrying sensory information. Those are what we call afferent fibers and carrying information from your organs up to your brain. So that's a great place to tap in for diagnostics. If you're talking about brain computer interfaces and, and you want to restore movement in someone who's paralyzed, well, you're going to link in, you want to go to the motor area. And people often ask me, well, why can't you just use scalp-based electrodes like EEG? You know, we just wear a helmet or wear a, a EEG headset. But the problem is, is the physics. It's like trying to listen to a conversation, say, at a football stadium, and you're standing on the 50-yard line, and two people are talking up in the rafters, you know, very high. Well, you're not going to 
hear the details of that conversation. And that's like sitting at the scalp when you're trying to listen to certain neurons in the motor area. But if you can get closer, that helps tremendously. And that's why we develop these brain interfaces and uh, get closer and get more precise. So the indication of the need, the medical condition we're trying to target will absolutely shape what device we need to have. Let me ask just two last questions. And one is, if you think about the opportunities that we've talked about here, where would you ideally like to see the field go maybe over the next few years? And where are you trying to push the field with your research? I would like to see that we first target medical conditions because that's where the greatest need is right now for these kinds of technologies. And you look at the risk-benefit ratio, right, because you have to consider safety here, and the risk, you know, of, say, implanting a device versus the benefit where you could help someone move again or feel again or someone who has a degenerative condition, a neurodegenerative condition like ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, and you could help address locked-in syndrome. I mean, those are incredible medical needs or help someone who's had a stroke recover function. You know, as I mentioned, that's one of the other leading cause of paralysis. And and you look at all the other conditions we talked about, diabetes and so on, affecting millions of people. Well, if you can, you know, really focus on those areas first, I think that makes a lot of sense. And down the road, I think it's not a matter of if anymore, if people will have, you know, these kinds of implants and even brain implants, I think it's now only a matter of when. And we need to start thinking about that. What do we want to do with these? Uh, how will those enhance the quality of life? And I think in general, if we focus on quality of life and needs first, and we think about quality of life as this field progresses, then I think we'll be okay and we'll have the right guiding principle there, always keeping quality of life in mind. I think that's a great guiding principle to end on. So let me move to our last question. We're always trying to help educate our audience. And this is more of just a fun one, but what is your favorite neuroscience-related book that you would recommend we all read? <laughs> well, there's a bunch. Um, <laughs> there's one that's not specifically just on neuroscience only, but it's a number of chapters that actually talk about the mind-body link. And this book actually came out quite a while ago by Dr. Michio Kaku, but uh, it's called Visions. And in fact, I just gave this book to my daughter to read, and she was literally just reading it the other night because she has expressed an interest in, in neuroscience. And I said, well, uh, there are some great chapters in here. But it talks about where are we going with these kinds of technologies. It talks about the mind-body link. And we all know that we can get sick uh, more readily. You know, our immune system is compromised even when we're under stress. And so we know that connection is very real. We know that the gastrointestinal system is heavily innervated, and there's many, many nerves carrying information to and from the gastrointestinal system, and we know we can detect certain substances, and we want to we want to purge those substances. We always talk about this phrase, you know, a gut feeling. Well, guess what? That's, <laughs> that's a real thing, and there's a neural signals, you know, of course, uh, traveling to and from the brain. Yeah, so I think, anyway, that's one of my favorite books, and it really speaks to the future and where we're going with all of this. It's a great recommendation. Uh, we'll add that one to the show notes. And that is all from us today. Chad, thank you so much again for joining us. This was really, really helpful and enlightening. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your program. 